Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Erev Yontif. It's Monday morning. And um, I wanted to do the bio before Yontif starts. So I have that out of the way. Uh, today, it's a funny story how I came to this. Uh, today's podcast is being sponsored by Eitan Ariel Shuchman. As I mentioned the other day, the list of the sponsorships. And after today, we don't have anybody for um, future bios or parshas at this time. So I hope people will step forward. We do have somebody for Yontif now. All right, without any further ado, uh, the other day in Shul, between Mincha Marva, I was talking, and I pulled out, you know, I, I mentioned I was in Lakewood, I bought this uh, set on the Chumash, I think it's called Sora Latte, but it's just like one-liners, one-liners, you know, mostly Hasidic, whatever. And since it was Hazinu, uh, so I read one before I got down to the main topic, which was the Halachas Vesukah, and told a famous story. It's a Baba Maisa, but it's a very famous story. You know, if you're a knowledgeable Jew, you're also supposed to know all the legends also. Get it? They don't have to be true, but they're famous stories. And one is often repeated in different farm. And then, by the way, there are collections of these. You know, you just get Hosaria Mea from a Maimon or whatever, but half of them at least are not true, but they're very famous stories. So one is about the Ramban and Avner of Burgos. They said the Ramban had a Talmud named Avner. Um, really, Avner Burgos lived 100 years later, but it doesn't matter. And this guy became a, a Meshumet. Uh, and the Ramban, by the time the story's over, you know, and he says, where am I mentioned in Parsha Sazino? And the Ramban shows him, and he freaks out. But what can he do? And at the end, by the time the story's over, he's so full of regret, he puts himself on a boat without a sail and without um, sailors and shoves out to sea and is never seen again. That's how the story goes. Um... Like I say, it's not true, but it's a very well-known story. There are a lot of no, well-known stories out there. So I mentioned that whoever composed this legend, whoever it formed, were using tropes. And one of them is a famous trope about being on an unmanned ship associated with Hanukkah ben Moshe. I didn't go into the details. I came home once at Shabbos, and I was thinking, who should I do this week? I don't know. And I looked up online who's the yard site. And then it hit, and then I saw it's Hanukh ben Moshe, Taku, I mentioned before. And then it realized, of course, you dummy, he died in Simcha's Torah. And so I figured that's so coincidental, I'm going to try to do that now. This is a very famous but not well known story. Those you're supposed to know it, it's not so well known. The reason I say you're supposed to know it is it's um, a story from the golden age of Spain in the 900s. Right in the in the late 10th century, maybe the very early 11th century, and this is Chanoch ben Moshe, the son of Moshe ben Chanoch. It's one of the four captives, and the reason you're supposed to know it is, it's in a very famous history book that most people have never heard of. And that's the Sefer Kabbalah from the Rivet. 
Now, I'm not talking about the Rabbi. There are four people called the Rabbi. The one I'm talking about is not the guy in the Rambam, but rather the historian right, and the philosopher. There was a guy who was an older contemporary of Maimonides. The Rambam was born in 1138. This guy was born in 1110. You know, like that. And whereas the Rambam and his family, very interestingly, ran away from the Almohad persecution deeper into Islamic territory, the Ravid, by contrast, and I repeat, it's not the Ravid on the Rambam, this guy, Avram bin Daoud, he went north to Spain, Christian Spain, Toledo, where he spent his life. So basically, if there were persecutions in Baltimore, you'd run to Philly, something like that, Wilmington, Philly, right? You know, something along those lines. Because uh, it was a different country, and there the Jews were treated uh, more tolerantly in, at that time. We're talking about the 12th century. And one of the things, and he was a philosopher, he wrote a book called Emunoroma, and he's also a historian. So today we would call him a Moscow. Obviously, I mean that in a firm way. We're talking a thousand years ago in Spain. Whatever. And he was a from me because he wrote the book, the Sefer Kabul, but in, in this case, Kabul means the the, the Mesorah. Like Kabul here means like the Mesorah. So uh doesn't mean mysticism. And he's the guy who tried to establish, um, and they use it, an unbroken chain of transmission down to his time. So he's the first historian, I think, who uses the term Tanayim, Amram, Gaonim, Rishonim, and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm oversimplifying, but for our purposes, that's enough. And since he lived in Spain in the 1100s, so to him, uh, the, the story of the Jews in Spain is obviously very important. And I would say he's an interesting historian for his time, and he's a broad view, and a very Torah-Dicka type of view, as you'll see in a second. And so one of the things he does in his book is to try to describe how Spain, how his friend became a Mokham Torah. Because they weren't once upon a time. But then they were. If you go back to Spain, which was conquered by the Muslims in the early 700s, uh, once the Muslims took it over, a ton of Jews moved there, along with a ton of Muslims. I mean, people from Yemen, from Iraq, it's, it's interesting. Lots of Arab tribes in Shabbatim moved from all over the Arab world to Spain because of a great economy. So Jews did too. That's where you get your Spartan. I know they have their legends about base amygdalas going back, and but that's baloney. They came, like I said before, you know, with the Arab conquest. Plus, there's a few that were there earlier, uh, from the Visigothic persecutions. Sorry. But the point is, that the Jews are rushing, flooding into Spain. In the 700s, they were not Tamil Chacham. In the 800s, they're not Tamil Chacham. In the 900s, they're not Tamil Chacham. Not really. Until a certain point. Okay? And then starts Tamil Chacham. That's the point of the story. That's the point of our hero today. And um, the question is, how did Spain become? Switch from A to B, from a place which was not Talmud Yichon, to a place which was. How do you know they're not Talmud Yichon? Most of the Chubas Hagonim, most of the letters that were sent to the, to the, to the Dubigi Shivas in Baghdad, Surah and Pumadisa, are from Spain. And they're mostly simplistic questions. You understand? So, they're from in the sense that they're writing shilas to the Yeshiva. I'm talking about the Gonic Yeshivas. It's not like Nerizu Yeshiva, you know, they sit and learn. It's also like a mini Sanhedrin in those days. This is Kufa's Hagonim. And you see a ton of stuff is from, not all, but a ton is from Spain. Okay? 
Um, so they would call from, but not very knowledgeable. I'll use an expression. They call them kitzer shulchan from. You know, like that. Nothing wrong. Fine. And then things changed. So the question is how do things change? This is what our our author, the Sefer Kabbalah, is trying to explain. And he said, well, it happened because of the four captives. And it's a very famous story. And I'm actually going to read it for you today, a two or three page business as we go along now. So that at least it'll be on the record and you'll have heard it from the horse's mouth, from the original source. And it's, like I said, it's so famous that everybody should know it. And he's describing over here how the yeshivas in Babylonia, which were the two big centers of the Gaonic period. The Gaon means the head of the yeshiva in Asurin and Pabdisa, which were one time almost like Sanhedrins and central uh, you know, heads of learning. The learning of Gemara was pretty doggone concentrated in those two places and much, much, much less, if anything, elsewhere. That all came to an end. And the end is because the money dried up. The yeshiva can't exist without the money. That's the bottom line. Question becomes how the money dry up. That's what our author is trying to explain. And he said, if you want to know how the money dried up, it's simple. Other yeshivas started in other parts of the world, and they took the money that would usually go to Babylonia. So instead of having a situation where every out there is dumb and you send all your money to Lakewood, let's say now starts a yeshiva in Chicago, in Minneapolis, in LA, in Mexico City, and then they take the money. So it's no longer going to Lakewood. That kind of model. So he says, like this. At a certain point, after a certain guy, after Haigon knows, in Babylonia, the Yeshivas and the Gon in Pasku stopped. I'm reading you something that was written in the 1100s. And this is all from God. That the money should be cut off. All the money used to come from the rest of the Arab world, from Spain and Marab and, and Morocco and Africa and Mitzrayim and Israel, the money stopped. Here's what happened. That there used to be, and we're talking about the 10th century now, the 900s, that the country you and I call Spain was different at that time. And when the Muslims came in, by way of background, they overran the country, 98% of it. Um, I always say, they, they left out the last 2%, that was a mistake, because it was like, I can't, so either you get it all, or it's Brachel Batal. The 2% metastasized, and over 800 years, they had the Reconquista, where they reconquered and took back everything from the Muslims, but nobody knew it at the time. And um, after the Arabs conquered... 98% of Spain, they fell to fighting among each other. Surprise, surprise. And each city set up its own Medina, and they had civil wars and fought all the time. And meanwhile, the Christians in the north were able to get their act together and start reconquering. This already happened in the late 700s. By the time you get to the early 900s, the Christians had recovered 25% of the country, let's say, of the Spanish-Portuguese peninsula. At that point, in the early 900s, the Muslims got their act together under a prince named Abdurman III, and he systematically went after and conquered all the different Arab stuff until all the Arab business was under his control. See, so he, he controlled 75% of Spain, right? Of the Iberian Peninsula. I've spoken about him before many times. And this Abdurman III 
emerged as one of the great rulers of history, certainly of the Middle Ages. He's the one who made Cordoba into the greatest city in the world with libraries and museums and, and, and streetlights and cleanliness and universities and all this stuff. It was a golden age of Arab stuff. And under him was Chazdim and Shabrut, the famous Jewish doctor, was his advisor. Okay? So this guy, who was a powerful ruler, he ruled Spain, he ruled uh, Morocco also. So he sent out, what do you say, a pirate ship, Shayotzim in Medina's Cordoba, Shalish, that there emerged from the caliphate of Cordoba, because the ruler called himself the caliph, um, a Shalish, a, an admiral, Mamun al an officer in charge of ships we call an admiral, Shemo ibn Dabachin, Shalocha Melchi Shmo Besvarad, and he was dispatched, this admiral, on privateer mission to go raiding, raiding, by his master, Melchi Shmo Besvarad, Ushmo Abdul Rahman al Nasser. This was Abdurman III, al Nasir, Abdurman the Victorious. And he, and he uh, launched a mighty fleet. Lichbosh Sfinos Edom to capture uh, Christian ships by and to raid towns that were on the border. So basically, this is like a Muslim pirate fleet, but privateers, it was legal. And if you were in a Christian port city like Marseille or Naples or something like that, you could get hit by these guys. And they were. That's how life was lived. This is the 10th century. This fleet, even though it was dispatched from Spain, which is on the western end of the Mediterranean, they sailed as they, they uh, robbed and pillaged and all this junk. They had a grand old time. And they raided as far as Israel on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And they went to the Greek Sea, which means the Aegean Sea. And that was the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, as they called it at that time. Turkey and Greece, as you would call it today. And they raided the islands there. So. If you know your map, you got uh, what we call today Greece and Turkey and the Dodecanese Islands and Rhodes and all that junk. That time's all part of the Byzantine Empire. And these guys were him and Ray. They pillaged and village and so forth. Um, and among other things, they found a ship there in that part of the world in the Byzantine waters. And there are four big rabbis there. Medina's Bari, the Medina's Sepastin. And they were sailing from Bari, which is on the heel of Italy, and that too was part of the Byzantine Empire, to Sebastia, which is another Byzantine city. Okay? Bari, by the way, is where they had the Esrugs. Uh Bari, believe it or not, had an important yeshiva zone. We don't know enough about it. This is the Byzantine Torah Velt. Not exactly the Gaonic yeshivas. We don't know exactly their uh, connections. A lot of theories about that. It's very fascinating. This is the Byzantine Torah belt, which, which I'm sure you know nothing about. And these four rabbis were going for Achnaz's Kala. Not what you think Achnaz's Kala to get a girl married. Kala, in those days, is like Yarkha Kala. They're going to raise money for the yeshiva. Whatever the yeshiva was in the Byzantines. And this admiral... Mazum Admiral Demachin captured the ship, and he imprisoned these guys. 
one of the four rabbis was Rabbi Chushiel, whose son was Ben Chanano. Echad Moshe Abishor Rabbi Chanoch. One will be our hero today, Rabbi Moshe, the son of our hero Rabbi Chanoch. Asru Mishto Chanoch So he was on the ship with his wife and daughter. I'm sorry, wife and son. So the father is called Moshe, the son is called Chanoch, and the wife is the wife of the father. Rabbi Chanoch Odenanar. And Chanoch, who is our hero today, was a kid, Adnar. Mashlishi, the third big rabbi, was Shmari ben Elchanan. And I don't know, the author says, who was the fourth rabbi. This is all famous stuff. That's why I'm sharing this with you. If you listen to this today, on Yantav, you'll have, uh, you know what I mean, uh, you'll have what to talk about. And the Muslim admiral wanted to rape the rabbi's wife. He was pretty. So as the Muslim guy advanced on her, she said to her husband in Hebrew, and she asked him a question, if she jumps into the water and kills herself, she'll be a suicide, will she be the right to In low. And he responded, quoting the Gemara, in other words, that we all know of the kids, the 400 kids or whatever, in Kamsa Bar Kamsa. And he said, He quoted a Pasuk to say that he will come back to Chiesa Mason. When she heard there will be a Chiesa So she committed suicide. Rather than let the Muslim guy rape her, she jumped in the water and killed herself. These four rabbis didn't tell anybody who they are. Otherwise, they'd charge a lot of money to ransom them. See, piracy in those days was important ransoming. They capture people. If they bring in money, you ransom, you ransom port to port. If you don't, you kill them. There's no point keeping them around. If you're Jewish, every Jewish community had a pigeon showing community. So this fleet went for R and R, rest and relaxation, stopped off in Egypt for a while. And basically, while they were in Egypt, the local Jewish community had X amount of money in the pigeon swimming box, and they were able to ransom a grand total of one captive. And they ransomed Rav Shemaria bin Ochanan. So he was made free, right, in Egypt. Um, and he became Rosh Hashibah there. And they sold him when they stopped in Africa, another Muslim port. In other words, what we call today Tunisia. And from there he went to the city of al Kairouan, which was inside Tunisia, a big um, commercial area. That was the most powerful of the kingdom's in the West, of the Arabs. He became Rashiba there. He got married, and then his son was Rabbeinu Hanan, who was the big rabbi in Karawan, what you hold today, roughly, Tunisia. And the third rabbi, doesn't tell you what happened to the fourth. The third rabbi came to Cordoba. So notice he came back to headquarters, the admiral with the ship, with the ships, having had a successful raiding mission, if you know your map, 
you can get it uh, on the Mediterranean. You come to the Spanish Peninsula, you go up the Guadalquivir River inland, and you come into the at the Cordoba, the city. And he sold the remaining to, I mean, he sold Ramosha and Rechanoch to the Jewish community as Pinyin Shavuim. The Jews in Cordoba uh, were po to him, you know, they redeemed him. And they thought they're just redeeming two Jews or Amaris, Amarazim. It doesn't matter. Every Jew, you know, you try to do Pinyin Shavuim, obviously. And so they thought they're doing a good deed. What about the mother? She ain't there. She died. That's what happened. And like I say, they don't tell you in this story what happened to the fourth rabbi. At this time, Spain was going through its greatest period under the Muslims. Abdurman III was the caliph. The the, the economy was booming to uh, Bamba. Um, again, Cordoba was the number one city in the world. Headquarters of palaces and art and culture and all this junk. And the Jews were just beginning to imitate them. And Chazdi ibn Shabrut, the famous guy, was, who was no Talmachachem, but a very famous MD, and he was the unofficial foreign minister for the caliph. So in those, Cordoba was a place to be. Bahayyab Cordoba, Beis Knesses, Shishmo Beis Knesses, Shal Beit Medrash. It's interesting. So what they mean is like this. There's a shul that had attached to it a small yeshiva. They had a dying. And let's put it this way. By the standards of Spain, this guy was a Tamil He wasn't a big Tamil By the standards of Spain, that's the point of the story. He was a real from guy. But his Amar is in Chas. So from guy means he knows a little bit. And you know, he was the from guy. He was the most knowledgeable guy they had, so he was the Dayan. Fiafa became Baosamacha Yodin, Hoyosin Medrash, Mafarshamolim, Bolim Biodim. The little he knew, that's what they taught and that's what they learned. So that's what Yeshiva was once upon a time. Let's say the guy knew Bubba I'm making this up. He didn't know anything else. Say, Learn Bubba Messiah. He got it right, he got it wrong. As we say, Echadamar, Bechadamar, but you know, they did their best. So I'm sharing this with you to show you what the times were like in the so-called golden age of Jews in Spain. They came to a part where he didn't understand a passage in the Gemara Yuma. I'll call Hazot right? And so, uh, you know, every time the coin, you know, Yarad, Vesavak, 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 Right, you know, every time the coin called changes his clothes and all this stuff. And he came across a passage he didn't know how to translate properly. And he said it over to the students that it didn't make sense. It didn't sound right. And they asked him to explain it, which he couldn't. Right? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I read it wrong. He didn't know how to translate himself. Our hero, the father, Moshe Mechanoch, who was a great Russian Shiva, he was sitting in the corner minding his own business, like a Shamas. And went to Russia, he explained the shop. Right? 
He explained what it means. And when they heard this guy talking, oh, he's not just some little Amar, whatever. They looked at each other. They said, can you explain the Gemara? And he explained the whole Gemara that I had trouble with very clearly. And then he started piling on questions they had from all over Shas or different places. And as we would say today, he was able to answer questions from four parts of Shulchan Aruch, from all Shas. At that time, there were people waiting outside to have a Din Torah. They, it was a basin. That's what I'm trying to get across. Don't think that everybody was ever on a basin, even in the Middle Ages, knew what they were doing. A lot of them is fly by the pants. That That's the way it was. You know, you, 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 you called the best you saw. They didn't know the Talmudic law so well. So they weren't able to enter, have the court session until the shear is over. But it's the Yotzen Adayin, right? And the Dayan, when he left to go to the court session, Hocha Balidin, so he was followed by the litigants who said, we want you to judge our case. And very nicely, he said, like the Bnei Sarah said to Hillel, Ani Aini Dayan. Right? I can't be a dying anymore. I was there, This guy looks like a beggar. He's Rabbi Amori. And I am putting myself under him. I'm his Talmud today and onwards. And you make him the dying. He knows he's a real Talmud. And that's how this guy went from being a penniless pinion uh, swim uh, guy to being a dying in Cordoba, the richest Jewish community in the middle of the golden age of Spain. So he landed in a golden pot. As a result, he's a dying, so the whole community did a fundraiser, and they raised, you know, for him serious money. They bought him a house and clothes and a Merkov, like we say today, a car and a chauffeur, and so forth. So he went from nothing to, to the top. When the admiral, the Shalish, heard about this, he got angry. He went to be chayzer in the mechira. Knows I this mekach tos. I didn't know the guy was a big Russian shiva. I would ask a lot more money. But the king, Abdurman III, said, "Let it go." Because the king was actually happy. He liked the fact that now we have our own Rosh Hashiva. The Jews in my country will have a, a, a religious leader who is a citizen of my country. I can control him. So that's how Abdurman, which shows you he was a very intelligent guy. Agree? Shows you he was a very intelligent guy. And um, that's a happy ending. Uh, and the rumors immediately spread over all the Jewish communities in that part of the world. And students streamed everywhere, which in old Hebrew means to learn by him. Next thing you know, he's the address for all the Shalos and Shubas. But Dovers have made Shvira gone. And this all happened at the time of Shvira gone. Karol Vishnas Dalla Alafin Tavshin Nun. What was that, the 980s or something like that? Uh, no, that's too early. Um... Uh, Roughly speaking. Well, I know that Abdurman died in 960 
I would imagine this would be something like the 950s. I mean, his dates are wrong here. You know, 940s even. Not that it matters to you. And he married into a rich family, like you say, say Reichman. That's what it means, you know. No, he's a covenator. Since he's such a great guy, and his wife was dead, he married, um, what do you call it, into this family. He married his son off to the family. It was the richest family in Cordoba. And, and his son married into that family. And later on, you know, when Rechanoch, his son, uh, had a daughter, she married into the family. Or did I say it wrong? Yeah, that's right. So if you want to know who their descendants are, our author is saying, anybody with the name Pelagi, right? It's a... Uh, it's not Palachi what you're thinking, but something like that. It doesn't mean Rechaim Palachi. It's a different thing. Aya. Uh, okay, fine. And he made a big yeshiva. And he was a Rosh Hashiva. And a rabbi and a dying. A godal, as we'd say. And that is when Spain started to have its own independence. No, let's put it this way. He started like a lakewood in Spain. In the city of Cordoba. Okay? But he was a big rabbi. He was, he was a bar hachi, and that's what happened. And he had many students, including Rabbi Yosef Bar Yitzchak Ibn Satanas Hayudu Ibn Abitur. Including a student named Yosef Ibn Abitur, Satanas they call him, who appears as called Tamblash and Arbi Lamelki Shmal Shoshmal And he's famous later on for translating the entire Talmud into Arabic for the Caliph Al Hakim, the next uh, ruler in, um, in Spain. Now that's bogus. That's not true. You know as well as I do. Nobody translated the whole Talmud into anything. Who would even want? Although you never know. Al Hakam. I'm, I'm not saying this is true, but I'll tell you what they write. They say Al Hakam was a big lover of knowledge and had a library of 600,000 volumes. That's impossible. But I'm just saying, even if they exaggerate, so theoretically, but I can guarantee you. Listen, I wasn't there, but I can guarantee you. It says he translated the Bible in Arabic. Probably translated Perkyogos. Get it? You know, and maybe a few passages pro Goyim. And that's it. He didn't do all this stuff. But anyway, this Abitur, Yosef Ben Abitur, obviously was a brilliant guy. That's the point they want to get across. Now, then, the rabbi died after so and so many years. In other words, Moshe Mechanoch died. And when he died, he left the position to his son, Chanoch, who obviously was educated by him. If he was a nar, when they're catching by the pirate, so put it together yourself. Since this student was such hot stuff, so he kicked against those. He competed with Rav Chanoch, then Moshe. So you have a classic yeshiva politics. You know, I should get the job of Rashi because I'm smarter than you. You're just the son of the previous guy. I'm not saying that's true, but that was the argument of... So he became a factionalist. And what happened was like this. Who was the backer of the father, Moshe Mechanoch, who redeemed him, who gave him the money, and fixed him up with Shaduchim. I'm sure he built him yeshiva. The answer is, Chazdim and Shabrut. 
the most powerful Jew in the kingdom, the caliph's doctor and secret prime minister, who we've spoken about many times. Very famous person. Chazdim <coughs> was a powerful Jew. Now you're in the era of the Muslim countries in which there's a powerful Jew and he has the favor of the ruler and you don't mess with this guy because he could kill you. I'm telling you, the Jew could kill another Jew. He'll certainly beat you up. You know what I mean? That's just how it was. These guys were little Hitlers, if you want to call it that, if they chose to be. Chazim and Shabrut was a very famous guy. He did a lot of good things. But he had a, stu- a secretary, Menachem and Saruk. And when another guy poisoned his mind against Menachem and Saruk, he had him thrown out of the house bodily on Shabbos and all the stuff tossed in the street. They treat him like garbage and so forth. I could do whatever the heck I want with somebody. You know, there's a poem protesting by uh, by that guy. What's the name? Menachem uh, Okay, now, um, so as long as Chazdi was alive, nobody challenged the succession, that the successor of Moshe Menachanoch should be Chanoch Ben Moshe, who is our hero. Okay? So he was able to have his position because the whole community was afraid to even dream of challenging this succession, since Chazdeb and Shabrut was in favor of it. And Chazdeb and Shabrut could do whatever he wanted in the Jewish community because he had the favor of the Caliph. And when Abdurman died, which I think was in 960, his son Al-Hakam, Chazdeb and Shabrut was even higher in the government under Al-Hakam. You see what I'm saying? So, his power never went away till his death. Shil of ain't on him ba'olam shayyachalachalakal as long as the rich guy Chazdim and Shavuot was alive, nobody would mess with our hero. Uh, but when he died, so then then there's no powerful Jew who is super tight with the Caliph, and therefore it's possible for Machlokes. And so two teams formed: the pro Chanoch Ben Moshe team, our hero who was the incumbent, and the pro-Yosef Ben Abitur team, who was the challenger. Um, and they started lobbying the new caliph. Not the new caliph, the caliph. Every day, they were, so let me put it this way. And this is a Shenkamo, but this is how our ancestors lived, baby. The two teams... Each, I mean, how are you going to win this, Machlekes? The answer is, whoever the king says. It's a dictatorship. If you get the king on your side, the caliph, you, you, you won. And so they formed lobbying delegations, and they lobbied the hell out of the, the government. Every day, huge delegations of Jews would come to bribe or persuade the Muslim big shots to favor our candidate, Team A for Team A, Candidate A, Team B for Candidate B. So Abderman had built a Versailles. They take you there. If you go, I was there in Cordoba. It's only the ruins now. He built a palace, de la palace. You can imagine. A luxury palace, de la luxury palace. Fancy de la schmancy called Medina del Zahira. You know, the Zahara, the, the brilliance. And Shvamus Ishmisro Rochem al Shvamus Merkavos. In, <laughs> I don't know it's an exaggeration. 
but high-level Jewish delegations who were making a chel Hashem going to the Goyim. He says seven hundred rich Jews with seven hundred chariots, so, you know, uh, going there to have an audience and say, "Favor our guy." And the next day, the other factions, and the, and the next day, the other factions. Finally, the Muslim guy said, "What the heck is going over here with you Jews?" See, I'm saying this is disgusting. That's disgusting, but that's what they did. So, Hayotin Mekordava al-Ir Zahara, they would go out to that palace outside of town. Shvamios Ishmi Yisrael Rochem al-Shvamios Merkavos. 700 rich Jews on 700 chariots. B'kol Nevushim Malchus, they're all dressed to the nines in Muslim style. B'choshim Mekbos Kedasar Yisrael, with big turbans. So they all dressed real fancy to impress the, the king. B'kol Mimarav, so team A was with our hero, and team B was with Yosef and Ibn Abitur, who in this book they called Yosef Ibn Satanas. And then our hero won, okay, which probably means they bribed away. And they were, because they got a green light from the king, they put him a cherub. Now it was team A, Put the leader of Team B, Yosef Ben Abitur, in Cherem. The question is, do you have to listen to the Cherem? Right? And the Caliph said to Yosef Ben Abitur, "You do have to listen to the Cherem." If the Muslims hated me the way so many Jews hate you, because I see from the delegations, yes, it's true you have your backers, but you also got a lot of enemies, <laughs> right? You know, you got a lot of enemies. So if they did to me what they did to you, your guys did to you, uh, I would flee. I'd leave town. <laughs> so so the king is telling him, my, adv- my advice to you, buddy, is hit the road, leave town. Now, if a caliph tells you to hit the road, you do it. Because <laughs> if you don't do it, he'll chop your head off. The chain also. And so Yosef and Abitur left. Angry, P.O.'d, and all the rest of it, he left. Baholach, he went to an island off of Spain, and then to Morocco. And he wanted to go around the rest of the Jewish world to complain. Now, I want to tell you something. Yosef and Abitur, maybe I should talk about it another time, is not well known at all. He was a big guy, and I'll tell you something else. He's a major python. People don't know it, because the Ashkenaz don't use his piyutim. He's one of the great poets in Jewish history. Religious poems. Pythonim, and he's good too. He wrote 700 things for the holidays, you know, Roshani, Yom Kippur, the Shal Shagom, all the rest of it. And very hush of stuff. He's quite a guy. So he was a genius at poetry, which Chanoch Mamosha was not. Chanoch Mamosha was a Talmudist, a halachist. And therefore, he obviously must have been a brilliant guy. He was really angry that with somebody he considered mediocre, Chanoch Mamosha got the job that he felt belonged to him. But the, the the Jewish world honored the cherub. That's the point. Right? The Rosh Hashivas, the rabbis, stuck together. And he met a, a guy, Shmuel Bekon, he met a big rabbi, let's put it this way, an important guy in Morocco. And he wanted to talk to him to persuade him that he, Yosin Avitur, is really right. And the guy would not talk to him. And the rabbi in Morocco said, I honor the cherim, the nidoy, that was issued by uh, Rabbi Chanukah, Moshe, our hero. Knows he is the rogue, 
in Cordoba, in Spain. He is. And he puts you in care. He has the power to do it. Because of Santinas, and the Yosin Abitur was angry, because he dares the Ocean Armies for Toba, he wrote a whole letter to him in Aramaic to show off that he was Aramaic well, which he did, but he made some mistakes. And the Moroccan guy said, You made some mistakes in your letter. In a nice way. And the story is, he traveled to the other end of the world, to Baghdad, from Spain, to Rav Haigon, who was still alive. And he thought that he would get a good audience with Rav Haigon because because he figured Rav Haigon hates Rav Chanuch. Now, why would he hate Rav Chanuch? You guys set up a yeshiva in Chicago, and now the money's not coming to Lakewood. You get it? He's the cause of the cutting off the money. They broke the monopoly of the yeshivas. By setting up your own yeshivas over there, in Africa, in Egypt, in Spain, and wherever, you're, you're, you're cutting off the money to the main yeshivas. Achabo, yeshivas the dildo. As a result of this, the yeshivas are broke. In spite of these economic factors, Rav Haigon also honored the Cherem and would not talk to him. If you come here, I'm going to have to treat you like a menuda. It'll be disgraceful. The domestic mission. And so he ended up going to Damascus where he saved the rest of his life. And that's the story. It's, this is an oversimplification. I don't need to go with you the details now of Ibn Abitori ended up in Egypt. The rabbi of the Israeli community, whatever. He didn't win. But Colonel McCain, but this story is very famous. But then it took a dramatic turn. But Colonel McCain is Akasha But then the political situation flipped. And in other words, the team B, which had lost, all of a sudden found themselves with good luck. And there are two brothers, Ibn Go, two two from guys who were on the, um, you know, on the head of Team B. They wanted Ibn Abitur. They didn't want our hero. And then uh, uh, something, they had a piece of mazel, but a strange story. They went one time. They were in the silk business. They went one time. Yeah, silk business means you're dealing with a rich clientele. And they went into a palace of one of the king's sarisim, either a eunuch or an official. The guy was in charge of a province, Tarragon. Happened to be that a delegation of Muslims from that town was going to see this official. And, you know, this is the way it works. You go to see an official, you bring a bribe, you bring some uh, a present. 10,000 to Hubim. 10,000 piece of gold. It was a skill of Dabri Love. And basically what they were doing was to complain that the governor, the tax collector you have in our town is oppressing us. And they brought him the 10,000 thing, 
and he wouldn't even listen to him. He immediately said, you dare to challenge my officials? This is one Muslim talking to another. I'll beat the hell out of you. And he ordered him to get Malchus, put him in dungeon. And as they were being schlepped out, they never even got to give him the bribe. As they were being schlepped out to um, to the dungeon. So, uh, it was a twisted path with a lot of rises and falls and bumps and they were being rushed. It's like a movie. So the bag which had the 10,000 pieces of gold fell into a hole. Nobody even noticed it. But And they tried to say, hey, we lost our money, but the guards were mama speaking the heck out of them as they walked, whipping them and so forth. You know, the Arabs... And after, anyway, and one minute later, the two Jewish brothers, Ibn Gob, were on their way in to see the official on business matters, and they saw the money. And they immediately found the money. And so they said, I guess, we are getting out of here now. They didn't have the meeting with the official, and they went right away home. And they sell the base of Amro, and they figure, what do we do with this uh, <laughs> pot of gold? Right? We found this in the king's palace. Let's go and bring it back to the king and say, we found the palace and give it to him. And maybe this will help us in our campaign to 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 knock out Chanuk ben Moshe and put in our hero, put in our 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 champion, Team B, Vayasu came, and so they did it. Uh, and it sounds like they. It's not clear the way he's writing the story, but maybe they poured the money into their local business. And they got a good government contract to make these Muslim flags. Nazgum, they were the best. It has the Koran, you know, on the flags like they have today, the green flags. And they brought a, a, a bribe to the to the uh, caliph, uh, Hisham. And to his prime minister, Al-Mansur. Now, if you know anything about the... Uh, Arabs in Spain, there's no reason you should. It's very famous that first he had Abdurman, who I mentioned before, then he had his son Al-Hakim, who was this big intellectual and so forth. And then Al-Hakim died kind of young and left a young kid who, who was a loser. And so the young kid was dominated. It's a long story. It has to do with a lot of intrigue and the mother and all the rest of it. The mother had a lover and so forth. A guy named Almansor became the prime minister, and he became like the Bismarck of, of Muslim Spain. He ruled the country. the The real the king was just like a figurehead, Hisham. He was a, he was a weak nothing, and Almansor was the real business. You understand? Know and he was a great general, by the way, a very from Muslim, a very ruthless guy. He beat the heck out of the Christians. That was the last time the Muslims mamish went on the rampage. He was a great general, 
And I remember he conquered Santiago de Compostela, the main Christian church, which even today is a big uh, shrine. You know, millions of people go there all the at the very, very top of the Christian area. So let's put it this way. He stuck it to the Christians more than any other Muslim. But he was a ruthless guy and he wanted money all the time. So he's called Uman, the, the, the guardian, you might say, of the caliph. And since he gave him a bribe, Almanzer, who always needed money to supply the armies, he's a brilliant guy. He reorganized the armies. I won't go into details. You know, he replaced the tribal system with a professional army. You don't need to know that. Almanzer means the victorious. You know, so he, knows he was a, a very well-known in European culture. Almanzer, they call him. Anyhow, so these two Jewish guys went in, and they gave him the money, and he liked them as a result. Because of Gillian, and so right on the spot, just for the heck of it, he said he gave him a, a certificate. Shenaso al I'll call Kilsi and I hereby appoint you two guys, complete rulers of the Jews, like we say today, from Florida to the Canadian border, from Sigil Masa, which is in Africa, to the Duro River. She is Shofit is Kulam. You you guys, the Ibn Go brothers. You can be the rulers of the Jews. You can appoint whoever you want. You can make whatever taxes you want. So no, these two schnooks, the Ibn Go brothers, all of a sudden became, by the king's order, Almanzar's order, the dictators of the Jews if they wanted to. And he gave him a, a, an honor guard of 18 Sarisim. Wearing clothes, they put him in the royal chariot. Benicolo, so in other words, these guys are now tight with Almansor. And the Jews in Cordoba were scared out of their minds. They said, okay, we'll follow you. And they laid it on thick. They said, you and your whole family should rule forever. You know, because they're scared of Almansor. Jews were. And so they would reach the top. Oh, so now as a result of this screwball set of circumstances, these two brothers were now the most powerful Jews in Spain. They say, yes, we fire Chanuch ben Moshe, and our guy who's in the Middle East somewhere, we're going to bring him back and get him the job, which is rightfully his, Ibn Abitur, that he should now be the rabbi in Cordoba, he should be the Rosh Hashiva, he should be the head dying, and so forth. And they told... You understand? Know it's like Eved Kimloch. Vishal Shliach al Reb Chanoch. And they immediately went to Reb Chanoch, they sent a Shliach. Shem Yodin ben Shnei Anoshin. If you dare to exercise the office of Dayan, if you dare to run a Bezin, Yasim Osoba Aniyah, Mibli Mashutos, Yasluch Miyam. We'll put you in a ship without any sails. <laughs> we'll put you in a ship by yourself, put you out to sea, and you'll float out to the Atlantic Ocean and never be seen again. That is the famous story that a lot of other troops are taken from. They threaten to put him out of the ship like that. And all the members of Team B now got out of, you know, who've been knocked down now rose up. And they wrote to the Middle East, to their hero, Ibn Abitur, said, come back. We're firing Chanukh, and we're putting you in. But Yosef Ibn Abitur, to his credit, said like this, don't do that. 
He sent him a tough answer. And he said, you guys did a bad thing. I see that Rabbi Chanoch is not a loser. And the way he's held in respect by all the rabbis shows me that he's the biggest guy in Spain. Therefore, you did the wrong thing. So don't imprison him and don't put him on a ship and all the rest of it. Right? This is all very famous stories. A year later, then sees him and go after these uh, two uh, brothers were riding high for 12 months, Asar al-Melch Al-Mansur. Al-Mansur changed his mind and put him in jail. This is Arabs. He said like this, the only reason I put you guys to be in charge of all the Jews is you should screw the Jews, take all their men away from him in outrageous taxes, and give the money to me because I need it for the armies. I didn't give you cover if you should have cover. I give you cover so you should be my agents to fleece the other Jews. But they wouldn't do that. Since they wouldn't do that, he threw him in jail. Dungeon. And they were in jail for, and this is a Muslim jail in Spain in the 900s, uh, for a whole year. Until an Arab holiday. The ruler, remember I told you, Al-Mansur was the prime minister, but he was the real power. But the official caliph was this guy, Hisham. He happened to be, one time the ruler, the, the real caliph happened to be passing by the jail. And uh, the Jewish guy stood in, 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 you know, behind the bars. And the king said, Hey, Amasa is looking. Why are they in jail? Because he said they wouldn't bring me my money. So the king immediately says, That's bull. And it, So Hisham said, I'm canceling your order to arrest them and in order you to reestablish them as leaders of the Jews. Now, I don't know if this story is exactly true because Hisham was a nothing, Almanzer was everything. But you never know. But they never reached the authority they had before. In other words, he got them out of jail and they went back into business and all that. They weren't the rules of the Jews. Because Yosef Ibn Abitur did the right thing, the noble thing. And he wrote this letter to Cordoba, they said before, that he should not fire our hero, but rather he should be the Rosh Hashiva, Lo and the and the rabbi and everything. Lo who's the rabbi So Rabbi Chanoch did not get kicked out at the end. In fact, Ibn Gog died a few years later. And it's a famous story that our hero also acted very nobly, and he showed great agmas nefesh. Because the Ibn Go died on Shabbos, on Friday night. And a member of the Pelagi family, who, as we saw, was on Team A, came to Rabbi Chanak by Moshe. So basically, he came to him Friday night. <laughs> he came to him Friday night at a meal on Shabbos. I have good news. Ibn Go just kicked the bucket. Right? You should be happy. But Ibn Go. But go, Rabbi Bechia. But our hero 
acted nobly and he started crying. And the guy bringing in news says, I don't get it. I came to inform you the death of your enemy. When did you start liking your enemy? And you're crying. Say what you want about the politics. And I was team A and he was team B. That is true. But it is also a fact that he did a lot of tzedakah. It's a fact he did a lot of tzedakah. Yeah? So as far as high politics is concerned, he was my opponent. But now you have a whole bunch of poor people that are now really not going to have any food. I'm going to do tomorrow for Saturday morning. You, Reichman, my relative, Palazzi, are you going to take him on? <clears throat> then I'm not going to cry. Sherry, I don't have any money. From here you see, that Chanuch ben Moshe was a tzaddik, and he never took advantage of his position. He lived a very frugal lifestyle. So he lived a very extremely cheap lifestyle. Now, I don't understand exactly how this all goes if he was married to Reichman. But okay, let it be. At least the story is a nice story that they want to tell you about the um, the nobility and the end of the two protagonists. And just to finish the story, and a number of years later, he died. Um... But the money never went back to the yeshivas in Babylonia, it says, because you know, once the money was going to the local yeshivas, that's where it stayed. Okay? The posh out of Tom Arts and Spain became a headquarters of learning. But Kane Hoyim in And here's how he died. The minig was, and here's what I'm mentioning this week, um, almost finished. Every year when he had Chosen Torah, on Simchas Torah, beyond the Bachman Shalchak, I own Imo Shlosha Gedoli Adarva Ini Edel Elateva. You ever been in a Safari Safari Shul? Like, for example, in uh, Tzfas, you climb up high to the Bima, right? Climb up high. By us, it's not like that way. But, you know, it's many steps to go up. Like, I'm thinking that's Shul in Tzfas, right? With Dari or whatever it's called. It was a car Shul. So imagine it climbed up real high and it was. Simchas Torah, and uh, not only our hero, but all the Chashua people in the Kehillah, Shlosha Gedoli Ador, the Three Richest Guys, the Eni Ho'eda, Alateva, Vyali Mosha, Bateva Ha'yishana, but the wood was old, and it was a terrible, the the uh, the the floor at the top of the Bima gave way, it was a crash. And they all fell down the hole. Okay? Is there a, you know, this is this is like a, the bleachers by the, by the Carlin, isn't that right? Oh, wait a minute. I have to stop this for a second. Yeah, I have to resume. Um, what I was saying was, it, reminded, it didn't even occur to me. This is what they should have... See, people don't know this story. It's very famous and people don't know it. This would be exactly like happened this past year. Surfside, Marone... The, especially the bleachers by the Chassidim, whatever you call it, the Carlin, because nobody was looking at how, how well off the Bema is, and they all fell in the hole. Um, but Olimo Kolyanta, Vateva Haisa Yishana, 
Vinishbrov and Aflukolol Olim. Everybody came up for the Aliyah for Chazan Torah, fell in. And sadly, our hero, as he fell in, he you know he, he cracked the back of his neck. You know, no, he had a fatal thing. So, you know, he his spine broke or something like this. He must have died in agony a few days later. He'd been a big marbid's Torah and so on and so forth. So he had a weird and strange ending, uh, which I can only interpret. You know, whenever I hear these stories, whenever you have a machlokas, it's a lot of iron horrors out there. I know it sounds funny, but I've seen it again and again in my lifetime. I've seen it again and again. You get these fights, and whoever wins, it's a lot of iron horrors. If Team A and Team B formed in such a bitter way, oh boy. And he got the iron horror. Now, what do I know? I mean, it, like I say, it's just my guess. But it's so strange. Imagine if, I can say this because it didn't happen, you know? Imagine if, uh, who fell in the bleachers or something like this, or Shlomza Arbach or something like that. You say, whoa, what is this? What's going on, right? Um, so he was the he was the, the Godol Hador in Spain. I want to be very clear about this. His Talmud Mubak would be Shmola Nugget. was a major guy also. So I'm talking about the Rebbe of Shmola Nugget. Okay, uh, he was considered uh, the God of the Look in Tufkot Sariyal, the the tour I mentioned the other day, which talks about the fact that there were two c- customs about how you did the silent Shmuel Esri and Musaf Rosh Hashanah. I don't know if you listened to what I said on for Rosh Hashanah, and he talks about the fact that um, what he called that uh, you know in Babylonian yeshiva was the only did the silent Shmuel Esri only did seven, not nine. And he mentions there, Chanoch ben Moshe, Godel Hador. Okay? Godel Hador. So, uh, as the Rebbe of Shmuel Nugget, so, and Abitzah Gibbon Giyat. So I'm just saying, he was a big guy. Did he leave anything behind? You know, yes and no. Simcha Asa published some of his Shalas and Shubas. Excuse me, his correspondence. That's too detailed for us to go into over here. I shared with this story because it's short enough that I could do it within the framework of an hour or so. And it's a very classic and famous story. It shows you the best and worst of Jewish character. Here they were in Spain in the Golden Age meeting under the Caliphate of Cordoba, under the three rulers, um, Abdurman, and then Al-Hakim, and then Hisham, although Hisham, the main ruler, was Al-Mansur. After that, the whole place fell apart. Um, literally, the kingdom disintegrated. But during that time... So the Jews had a stable government, but they it's its in the nature of the Jews. When you have a stable society, the Jews unleash their anger against each other. They started this big fight, who should be Rosh Hashim, Miesha Barosh. And, you know, obviously it got out of hand. Um, is it true that everybody acted so nobly? We'll never know. The story I just told you is the only source. So I would like to think that everybody acted nobly at the end. Although the death of Hanach is a weird one. And different every uh, Simchas Torah said. Uh, believe me, if rabbis knew this story well, and it's a classic story, you would have seen it all over the internet. You know, this past year with Marone and Surfside and all that other junk. But people just not so familiar with it, even though it's a classic and safer couple. I read you the whole passage. I read you the passage because a lot of times it's paraphrased. Even the art school in the Rishonim book, like they ad lib a little here and there and the other. If, I read you word for word. So you see, you know, at least what the original story is. And um, anyway, that's a very famous Misa, and it's connected with uh, Simchas Torah and so forth. And with that, 
once again, I thank the Shuchmans, and I wish everybody a good Yontif, and maybe I'll get back on Chalmoy. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.